welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm Patrick, the CEO of Sano Genetics, and I'm very excited to be here in person with uh, Jillian Hastings Ward. Um, I love doing podcasts in person because when we record, record them remotely, the sound quality can be a little strange, and also it's just not the same as a conversation. Um, but besides that, I think Jillian is going to be an incredible guest. Um, she has an amazing perspective on what it means to have patients involved in research um, from both her career now as a, uh, if it's fair to say that, as a, as a patient advocate, and also her experience as a mother of a, of a child with a rare disease. So very excited to be here with you, Jillian. Thanks very much, Patrick. Um, so today we've, we're going to talk a lot about what it actually means to do patient-powered research and, and what I think what the future will look like. And Jillian has done something that no podcast guest has ever done before, which is send a uh, almost a kind of manifesto of her vision of the future of patient-powered <laughs> research. And I, I think it's brilliant because um, few people actually think about it in such a structured and visionary way. So I wondered if you could just maybe start by going back to how you got involved in this in the first place, and then maybe we can talk about some of your, your ideas for the future. Sure, thanks very much. Um, I think it's fair to say that, like many people who've become patient advocates, none of us really planned this from the beginning. It just happened by virtue of having a child who turned out to be quite severely disabled and discovering that nobody else really knew what was wrong with him either. Right. We had, um, we had Matt Might on the podcast before, uh, almost, uh, I think it was two, three weeks ago, and uh, he had the very same, essentially, kind of uh, lightning strike that changed his career. So that, so that was it for you. What, what precisely happened? Well, I'd been working in the civil service here in London, and um, my son was my second child, who was born nearly six years ago now. And it became apparent about three months of age that he wasn't seeing anything. And subsequently, we discovered that actually um, that wasn't his only problem, and his developmental levels were... um, quite a long way behind what you would expect. And as time has gone by, he's continued to diverge from the norm. He's still operating at the level of a six-month-old, really. But he's very loved, and he enjoys the life that he has. And now, um, thanks to the wonderful genetic medicine in this country and the ability of, um, thanks to the 100,000 Genomes Project, the ability to find out specifically which gene is causing his trouble, we've been able to find a community of people around the world who are in the same position and start doing something about it. So so we'll, we'll go into this a little bit more later, but recently you've um, won a award from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative as part of the um, patient foundation that you've that you've helped start and, and been a part of. Can we just go back to the diagnosis of your of your son in the first place? What um, how long did it take to go from kind of initial you know th- when you spotted that there was a problem and just walk us through exactly how that went for you? Gosh. Um- well, it and yeah, it, it seemed to take quite a number of years actually until we got to a diagnosis. But um, three months, we were referred to an ophthalmologist who said, "Oh, it's probably just a visual delay. Right. Come back in nine months if you're still having trouble." But nine, about, nine months, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah just go home and, and right. flash some lights at him, and, and everything will be fine, you know. And and you know, you want to believe that, don't you? Yeah. And the reason that that diagnosis was made at the time was because there's not anything structurally wrong with his eyes. Right. So as far as the ophthalmologist could tell, all the bits were working. As they should. Right. And it just wasn't until later we discovered that the messages coming in from his eyes aren't being interpreted as they should be. Right. 
That makes sense. And and so at some point you were referred to a clinical geneticist. Hope it didn't take nine months. Hopefully, was it? Uh... Um, no, that that process. Um, we saw a pediatrician next, right. and she tested his various functions just before his first birthday, and concluded that there was quite a lot was quite wrong. Right. Um, and did the tests that were available to her at the time? She tested his blood um, for the white cell count right. and various other bits and pieces at the time as well. And um, all of those results came back normal, but he clearly wasn't. So right. the next thing to do was to refer on to genetics. Right. And they invited us to join the 100,000 Genomes Project. Right. So you, you're actually now a, a, a leader in the 100,000 Genomes Project. At the time you, you joined, do you know what number patient or family you were? Uh... That's a good question. Um, we were recruited um, in South London at the time we were living here although we've subsequently moved away, and uh, St. George's Hospital right. um, recruited us. And I think we were one of the first families wow. that they got. So they were quite interested to follow our progress. Yes. But it also meant that we were sort of guinea pigs. So yeah. our samples <laughs> were sent off, uh, and uh, we were invited to um, join the patient network that right. existed then in the sense that we could um, get emails with updates on how the project was going in the round right. rather than our specific results. And so about six months after that, that would be in the autumn of 2015 right. that we, we signed up and, and gave our blood. Uh, and uh, about yeah, the following spring, there was an email came round through the local genetic, genomic medicine centre saying um, that Genomics England were setting up a participant panel right. and looking for people who'd be interested to join it. And if they had relevant skills and interest, then um, you had to have been sampled or about to be sampled right. as part of the project in order to qualify or to be the main carer of someone who had. Right. So you had to have skin in the game, as it's yes, described. Absolutely. And um, really to be have that first-hand experience. Because what Genomics England wanted to do was really tap into the, the, the users that were actually experiencing life as people who had rare conditions and in due course some of whom have rare cancers and not yep. so rare cancers, um, to make sure that they were hearing directly from people who were using the system to find out how it was going. So I was fortunate to join the panel. And about a year after that, I would say, um, we did a bit of a secret shopper test to find out how our research or how our, right. how our samples were all going through the process. So um, those of us who by then had been recruited from all over the country went back to our recruiting centres and said, so, you know, how's it going? What happened to my sample? Can you tell me where I am in the system? And that was fascinating at that point because understandably the initial focus was on recruitment getting right. people in building the pipelines that then they could process right. the data and get answers out at the end so yeah there was quite a variety of experience across the country and um, thanks to that prodding i think it then turned out that there had been a result had come back to my local geneticist where they'd found a variant that they thought was pathogenic right. and then we were able to hear about that once it had been verified by the local center wow but it did it did potentially take some of that kind of <laughs> action from you to, to move it along. I mean, I suppose that we talk about this a lot on the podcast around how most research projects actually get patients involved way too late in the game um, okay. because things like this haven't been thought about, right? As you say, the focus is on recruitment um, and, you know, perhaps rightfully so at the beginning, but, but the follow through isn't always there. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, and I wouldn't say it was anything to, you know, I don't feel like by being part of the panel we managed to get special treatment. Yes. It was just that we were essentially stress testing the system 
for them and discovered a few things on the way. Well, it's, it's like almost like with any product that if you reach out to the company with a problem, they will help you to solve it, right? But you do have to take that action and say, you know, where is my Amazon? Where is my package? They, uh, they don't <laughs> yes. always uh, yeah. respond. Yeah. Having said that, though, that was one of the great things that um, came out of this. It was we demonstrated that there was a huge appetite among patients and right. participants in this project to find out where they were in the system and that it wasn't quite as straightforward as everyone had thought it would be to right. tell people where they were in the queue as it were. So Genomics England were persuaded to set up a sample tracking service yeah. which enabled any participant anywhere in the country to contact them and find out where they were. Yeah. I th- and I think it also should be said that, I mean, as far as I know, Genomics England is certainly the largest sequencing program or organization of this kind to have a patient you know, to have a participant or patient panel um, to give this feedback. So that do do you see that as a you know is, is it a exemplar for other projects? Do you see this in other projects around the world? That's or a good should, question. Should it be? Um, <laughs> I think we've established that there are great benefits to engaging with your your end users and the people they love, and I, I think the model that we've developed in the course of um, getting as far as we have with the 100,000 Genomes Project, which isn't finished yet, but it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's doing a, a good job for a lot of people. Um, the, those sort of relationships are now uh, something that we're trying to encourage other organisations to think about putting in in their right. own governance structures. So, and maybe this is an interesting segue to the work that you're doing that's being funded by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, because that initiative, from my understanding, is, at least as of today, very focused on funding patient-led organizations and patient-led initiatives. So in some ways, it's maybe flipping the model rather than saying we have a national program or a, or a scientist-led program that then gets patients involved at the early stages. You can flip it around and say, let's start. And a lot of the balance of power is because who has the money, right, and who can dictate the, sure. the terms of, of what happens. So is that? can you tell us a little bit more about how what the plans are with that and, and, and what you intend to do. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, the, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative last summer announced that they were um, going to bring out a programme called Rare as One. Right. And the, the intention is to support patient-led research organisations to share skills between each other, but also to be able to develop networks that are of scientists and clinicians around the world who will be able to help provide their expertise to that group of families who are affected by a specific rare condition right. with the intention of finding treatments and ultimately a cure. So what are the big challenges in, in GRIN, GRIN disorders? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that for people who haven't heard of uh, GRIN. Um, sure, yes. Yeah, we, we've missed out a, a few steps on the story of how yeah. my son was diagnosed. But um, yeah, it turned out he was the first person diagnosed in the NHS with a disorder in the GRIN1 gene. Right. And there are several different GRIN genes. We've now discovered that there are pathogenic variants in GRIN1, GRIN2A, 2B and 2D. And so there are patient groups around the world in each of those different uh, GRIN groups. And do do uh, people who are affected by one resemble closely the others, or are there some overlaps, but not, not fully, I imagine? There are quite a lot of similarities. Right. They're all fundamental to how your NMDA receptors work in your right. brain. So um, difficulties um, tend to focus on um, intellectual disability and um, movement disorders, epilepsies. GRIN1 particularly seems to be affected by vision disorders. Um, Some of the GRIN2 genes have more of a correlation with auto... um, 
autism, right. for example. So um, there's, there's different themes among the different right. genes. But the scientists that we've been speaking to uh, most often, um, Professor Steve Trenellis and his team at Atlanta, right. um, Emory University in Atlanta, they've been trying to encourage us for a number of years now to coalesce around the wider green Right. So um, rather than each gene with yes. its own um, group. Yeah. Yes. The, in the basis that the things that tend to go wrong with one could also be going wrong with another. Right. And if they can find ways to address what happens in some of the green genes, then perhaps there'll be lessons that are transferable. And also it gives them a larger population of people to study. Right. So the worldwide literature currently stands at, I think there's only sort of 200, and, no, yeah, 230 cases have been documented in the worldwide academic literature about grin disorders. We know that the population within our community or the people that we have access to is probably closer to maybe 500 families right. around the world. And, you know, that's just a virtue of the time lag between when these publications came out and where we are now. So, you know, I have every expectation that in the next few years, we're going to find a whole lot more people Absolutely. as well. Absolutely, especially as se genome sequencing becomes ubiquitous around the world. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the very exciting things for me to discover, I think, was that the, the gene panels that are being used to diagnose intellectual disability, particularly in developmental delay, now include... Grin one, right. So people are going to be found much more readily yes. than they were before, and and the same goes for epilepsy as well. That's now deemed to be a, related to that. So it's it's finding it's it's easier to to be diagnosed, but it's still quite a long way off actually finding any treatment. Right. There's a lot of conversation between us as a community about the kind of problems that we have right. and what it would be nice to try and address, and. Schemes like Rare as one are going to help us formalize that a bit and, and actually start targeting some further investigations. Right. So what are the, and I'm sure every, you know, every person has a different set of priorities, but, you know, maybe from you personally or, or from the conversation of the group, are there some, is there some broad agreement around the first thing we need to do is X and the second thing is Y? Yes, I, I probably should have done a bit more homework on this one, Patrick. <laughs> Sorry. And apologies to Keith and Denise, who are leading the Cure Grin enterprise. Um, uh, yes, the, um, th there's sort of three main things that they're trying to achieve in the first few years. Uh, one is building up more of a community. Right. Two is finding a way of creating some kind of registry, which is going or facilitating other people to create a registry, yes. which will mean that the researchers are better able to understand what right. they're looking at. And thirdly, it's to um, work with people around the world who are already doing things like mouse modeling to find out whether right. there's lessons that they can teach us. Is there much known about how closely uh, the mouse kind of matches? Is it a, is it a useful model? Because in some conditions it is, but in others it's really not. Well, when I first heard that there were mouse modelers interested in Grin, I was quite surprised, yeah. I must confess. But I had a fascinating conversation with Amy Ramsey, who leads the lab in Toronto, which has right. been um, breeding Grin 1 mice for a while now, ostensibly in, in search of a um, treatment for Alzheimer's and other similar conditions. And she was quite surprised a couple of years ago to discover that there are humans who already have these Grin disorders. And so I was desperate to find out about the characteristics of right. her mice, and she was quite keen to hear about our children, not surprisingly. Um, but yeah, intellectual disability, epilepsy is very much on the cards. But she was also puzzled by some of their behaviours. And um, she was wondering whether the fact that her mice appeared not to have much grip strength was right. something that we have also. And I was able to say, well, our kids are able to hold on to things when they feel like it, but they just don't know why they would <laughs> want to bother. Be motivation. Yeah. Totally. So maybe she'd like to go and investigate 
a bit more about the motivation of her mice. Right. So she was going to go in and think about that a bit further. And similarly, um, there's a mouse test they do to find out um, how interested mice are in getting out of water in, onto a little island if you put them in a tank with an island on it. And all her grin mice were just lounging around in the water. And, and I said, well, you know, I and a lot of other patients, uh, parents actually, yeah. <laughs> said, well, our kids love swimming too. You know, right. that's, that's something they would like. But the weirdest and most intriguing of all for me was... Um, I had to ask, so many of our children have very lustrous hair. So I said, is there anything unusual about these mice and their fur? Yeah. And she said, well, actually, <laughs> well, there is. When we, when we um, mutate these uh, green one genes in the mice, they grow a dark stripe down their back. Really? And it goes away again when we fix them. And, you know, that is something which clearly has no clinical utility yes. but it's obviously a thing that grin genes do and that for me rang a massive bell about well right. what other things do they do that we don't know yet yeah and i mean i suppose it's a it's probably a fundamental gene you know it, it, it almost certainly is a fundamental gene so um that usually means that it's present in other closely related organisms to us so hopefully you can find okay. some clues in in the podcast with matt um i think i asked him towards the end of the matt might um, advice that he would have for patient organizations or researchers in, in ultra rare conditions. And he actually it was, it was surprising, but in retrospect, it makes complete sense. He said, don't worry so much about assembling all of these huge data sets and natural histories. Mm -hmm. He said, focus on finding a good model organism like a mouse, um, and screen for, for therapeutics that actually, you know, that the, the Therapies can come from very surprising places. Often a drug that's already been approved yep. somewhere else can work. So is, is that something that you all have been discussing as well? Yes, absolutely. And um, people on the on the listening out there might have already heard about um, Helix. I've recently yes. been looking for rare groups to work with. Um, we're not sure yet whether we've been selected to work with them, but the kind of work that they're talking about doing using artificial intelligence yes. to screen orphan drugs to find potential targets is something we'd be very excited about. We actually, um, we interviewed them for the podcast as well. They're, as of this recording, it hasn't been published yet, but I think it will be in the next uh, week or two. So so people will be able to, by the time this is out, people <laughs> have, have been able to hear about that. Oh, oh good. Yeah. Well, I hope we'll be able to predict that we might be able to work with them. I think these kind of approaches yeah, maybe we'll know by then. I think I think these kind of approaches are are great as well because they reduce the time, hopefully reduce the time to development of a new. You know, if if it takes fifteen years, then the amount of money and fifteen years and the amount of money required means you know, unfortunately, that conditions that don't have thousands and thousands of patients, just the businesses can't justify to yeah. their business people why you know you can justify to humans why it's important to do but to the business people it just doesn't make sense but if you can use already approved drugs yeah. do it in four years then i think it opens up a huge uh, you know realm of possibilities and that's very exciting yeah. obviously we love our kids to bits but it would be great if they didn't find the things they find difficult less if they could yeah. find them less difficult that would be fantastic the, in in the um, in some of the information you sent me before, you you laid it out in a in I think a really interesting way. You said that where we used to be in terms of patient involvement in research was all about awareness. You know, yep. in, are we once we write something out, let's write it up in a way that everyone can understand, yep. right? And and where we are maybe now is moving towards collaboration. So yep. things like what you just described patient organizations or individual patients and researchers working together. Yeah. You said that the future though is potentially patient led research networks. Can you explain to me what you mean by that? Well, I think the, 
there are now so many different ways of defining a rare condition. And so now we can see in such detail about what it is that's causing a problem. Inevitably, there aren't going to be enough researchers and doctors out there who are already going to be specialists in all of these to be able to immediately talk to us about what we can do. So I I think um, it's... uh, it's, it seems very important for us to try and coalesce around the condition that we're all affected by right. and to jump up and down and make enough noise that we can attract enough attention yeah. of enough bright young things to come and help us, really. Yeah. And so by making ourselves as well organized as we can be and um, curating our data to an extent which makes us attractive for people to come and look at, then I think we're doing ourselves a favor there. Do you, do you suspect that... Um this kind of patient-led research networks, what, what other downstream effects will that have on drug development or, or research more generally? Do you, do you imagine a future where um, you know, patient-led networks are funding PhD students and, and labs and you know, maybe even whole clinical development programs for pharmaceutical companies? Is that kind of the, the way you imagine it? That would be fantastic. I would imagine that the the kind of conditions which are going to be able to harness enough funding to do that sort of thing are going to tend to be ones which are a bit more common than the ultra of rarest. But I think it depends how effective you are at fundraising and awareness raising to a great extent, because if people don't know you exist, then they can't offer you any funding. So that's a a real job for the the comms side of our organization, particularly, is to just get noticed, really. Yes. And and I suppose some of the initiatives like Chan Zuckerberg can help with that. But you also just have to I get the impression that you work very hard and you you know, you don't work uh, nine to five. You're um, (laughs) you're always working in a sense because you're you know, I know you're on numerous different leadership positions in, in large-scale okay. organizations, but also day-to-day yeah. tweeting and raising awareness and those sorts of things. Yeah, I think that's true. And partly that's just the 21st century way of working right. that you never completely switch off. But also, I think you do find that because it's something which drives you on a personal level, it's quite easy just to let that spill into every spare moment that you have. And and I'm sure my mother would tell me I do too much of all this and I should just actually spend more time (laughs) playing with my own child. But, um, you know, it's very tempting to keep trying to keep pushing on all the fronts that we can. And and, um, we haven't talked about this much yet, but certainly in terms of, you know, being able to actually contribute to some of the conversations that are now happening at the level of information governance in Britain about what's happening more widely for rare disease patients that feels like something really worthwhile to be doing. And I I think I'm very lucky to be in the position where I've got a bit of time to spend on this. And I'm very grateful that things seem to have gone as well as they have so far. What what other kinds of changes would you like to see? I mean, from my perspective, one of the big shifts in the last five years has been the now growing availability of genome sequencing as a diagnostic test yep. where I, th- I think getting a lot better and hopefully we'll be a lot better at making that initial diagnosis. Yep. What, what other things do you think need to happen? I think we're just beginning to realize inevitably as we all move through the process of having been part of the 100,000 Genomes Project yep. and now getting to a stage where people are getting results back from that in quite high volumes. I think we're just beginning to grapple with the problem that even if you have a diagnosis, it may be so ultra rare that there might not be anyone else in the country you share it with. So that ability to help people find people like themselves and to help researchers who've got the skills and the interests to do something about it is something that I think 
it's great to see that uh, I know that Baroness Blackwood recently acknowledged the importance of doing more to help people who are in the right. immediate post-diagnosis phase. And I think that's a real, real strength and something that we should really be focusing on. Do, do you all use any of, because there are a number of, um, you know, there's software to create your own patient registry. There's patient social networks you can, you can join. Is, what occupies that space for you all? Or is, or is there something that doesn't exist that you feel like should exist in a way of connecting to the rest of the Grin community, for example? Do you all use a Facebook group or do you use one of the you know, patient social networks like Health Unlocked or Patients Like Me or one of the others? Okay, yes. Um, I think initially uh, most of us found each other through Facebook. Right. Um, and as time goes by, I think uh, you know, there are great strengths in, in that degree of visibility on the internet, but there's also, uh, there's also an appetite for a space where you can meet yeah. online without necessarily being overheard by the world. Absolutely. So I think that's probably something that will be... Well, it, I know it's something that Cure Grin are investigating right. in the next phase um, with support from Jan Zuckerberg Initiative and right. the other Rare as One partners to think about how we go about creating an online tool resource right. where researchers and clinicians and patients can get together in a way which doesn't leave anybody exposed in a way they wouldn't want to be. Yeah. I know that there are some researchers, for example, who avoid being on Facebook or if they are, they're under pseudonyms yes. because they don't want people ban, you know, just sending them a barrage of questions all the time. And yeah. you have to respect that. And similarly, nobody necessarily wants to display themselves on the internet as somebody who's got a particular condition and yeah. is welcome to be approached by anybody who wants to talk about it. Right, or, or advertisements. Or, Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, that social media has been a really useful tool to be able to find each other. But I think there is going to need to be an evolution beyond that. And I think, you know, we're still quite a young organization. So yeah. we're still exploring the options there. And, and I think one of the other one of the other points that you kind of raised in your assessment of where we are today and where we're going is is who has the power in the situation. And and I know with with Facebook specifically, there have been issues with um, I think breast cancer survivors group. There are a number of activists that um, have flagged up the way that ostensibly but data people thought was private and part uh, of a closed group yeah. was available um, due to you know due to issues with the way it was configured I also understand that Facebook is trying to make some changes so they're not sitting on their hands yeah. you know in, in this particular case I think they recognize the problem but even if they you know even if they create a space for example where people um, won't be targeted by ads, won't be heard. They they still are the platform owner. Um, so I wonder if you have any thoughts of how, you know, maybe we're, we're going to get a little bit philosophical here, but what do we need to do to shift that power? Um, that's a that's a good question because I think, you know, there's none, you know, there many, many of us, certainly those of us born before 1980, wouldn't have a clue about how to set up our own networks. Right. And so we're very happy to use a tool that's been generated by somebody else. Right. But we need to trust that we're not going to be disadvantaged by it. Right. So you have to, so you, so you I suppose, don't see a problem with a platform as long as you can trust it or, um, you know, but... Or maybe it's something like, I know WhatsApp has its issues as well, and I think mm. they're probably owned by Facebook, but um, things like Telegram, where the data is encrypted as it goes between right. um, people. Is it about, you know, is, do you see it as a technological solution, or is it really more about a, um, you know, a platform run by an organization that you can trust is, mm. you know, is maybe a better alternative? That's a, that's a good question. I think there's quite a chunk of the 
people who have children with grin disorders probably don't mind who it is that they're using to talk to what kind of platform it is as long as they can have conversations which are relatively private where they would like them to be and enable them to reach as many people in the same boat as they are right um but there will be others who are very exercised about the privacy and and you know right. the extent to which any of the information they share could be used for targeted adverts right. or whatever as well. So or insurance or what have yes, you. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And I suppose that's another thing that we in Britain are shielded from the hard nosed end of that yes. really because of the National Health Service. And I suppose um, I imagine that there's quite a lot of difference in North American healthcare that really does mean people have to be perhaps a bit more cautious about what they say about what's wrong with them or about what yeah. they plan to do about that. Yeah. And, and I, and even, um, you know, there's, there's insurance companies, there's law enforcement. Now there are a lot of discussions around yeah. who has access to genetic databases and there's also foreign, foreign government issues. So I know there's a number of research studies in the U S that won't allow, um, non U S technology providers to, yeah. to touch the data at all. Okay. Um, so it doesn't matter what country you're from. If you know, if, if it's not the U S then you can't touch the health data. So it's, I think we're transitioning maybe to, to a, there will be new challenges, right? If data can never leave the country, how do we, um, how do we do research that in rare disease requires yes. international collaboration? Yes, and that's definitely something which, you know, I think Britain as a whole is grappling with. And, and, and as you mentioned, you know, internationally, it's, it's a big challenge because if we're going to move towards personalized medicine, the ability that we need is to be able to compare one patient in one country with a patient right. in another country. So you need to have that level of interoperability that means that people can be compared at an anonymous right. level for the benefit of actually how they're treated. But you don't want to put that in a form which is going to be too easy to access right. or in some way could be used to disadvantage that individual. And so that that constant tension between how robust your access controls are right. and how much use this information can be to anybody is something which I think we're all still grappling with, really. And it's definitely one of the big questions of our time. Right. It's sort of fundamental, right? You, if, you open, if you open access, then you increase the, the potential for it to be misused. Yes. Um, but you also, if, if you close down access, then you limit... Um, you limit the amount of science that can be done. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I suppose there is no answer, right? It depends on what a group of individuals thinks or the circumstances of a situation. Yes. And I suppose that's, that brings us neatly into something which was published in this country last year. That there was a conversation, a public conversation about what was an acceptable use of, of genetic data right. and genomic data. And um, Genomics England and Ipsos Mori did quite a lot of research together and and published a very useful report that set out where, at the moment, the public's red lines are in terms of what's an acceptable use of health data and what is not. And I think that formed quite a useful framework for decision makers in this country, certainly, about the public appetite for what they expect from the healthcare system and what they expect it not to do. Were there surprises? Uh, I mean, I think I could, we could probably predict some of it, but what were were there any surprising pieces from it? I think it was interesting. There's, you know, the, every study that ever seems to investigate this finds that there is generally quite a quite a big appetite for people to let their data be used for the yes. public good or for the good of other patients. Right. But I think then, depending on the communities that you're talking to, there's varying levels of suspicion about what else that data might be used for. Yeah, I mean, one um, 
one interesting thing that I've noticed as well is when you talk about use of data by commercial companies, whether it's pharmaceutical companies or big tech companies, yep. often the the way that it's pitched, people can be really sensitive if you phrase it as your your data will be sold to pharmaceutical companies, mm-hmm. um, big red flags. But if you say your data will be accessed by pharmaceutical companies to develop new drugs, then, yes. then people, are, you know, both of those things are true because um, many of the national scale genome institutes or, or genomics programs are in full or in part funded by pharmaceutical companies. Now, if we take UK Biobank, for example, mm-hmm. uh, the lion's share of the new whole genome and exome sequencing is funded by pharmaceutical companies, but ultimately for the benefit, um, you know, ideally of developing new drugs, but where, where do people, you know, where do people stand on that? It's a, it's a, it's a tricky issue, isn't it? That is very interesting. And especially with the biobank, because everybody who's in it has consented to not be contacted about what happens. Next. Yes, that's right. Exactly. So, um, I bet there's quite a lot of people out there who are part of the biobank who would love to know a bit more about their own genomes. And I, you know, I'm not party to any of the conversations about that. Right. So I don't know what the plans are there, but I would imagine there'll be a certain requests coming in from quite a lot of people there to find out more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, go yeah, on, what were you going to say? That, that's another interesting question about who knows what about me compared to what right. I know about me. Yeah. And what is acceptable not to tell me about? Right. And what is it not acceptable not to tell me about? So, uh, you know, if, uh, for example, um, if my, my genome is, has been sequenced, it's sitting there in the database, I'm waiting to find out whether any additional findings relating to me have been found or not. So whether I've got a predisposition to particular forms of cancer or right. conditions like familial hypocholesterolemia, right. which are, there are genetic markers for these. Yep. Um, and so, you know, I would love to know the answer to that question as far as they can tell me. But there's a lot of other things that my genome could probably also say about me, some of which I don't really want to know because, right. you know, with the best will in the world, you have to live in the here and now. Right. And sometimes knowing too much about what the future holds can actually be more damaging be to your current mental yeah. health. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, those kind of questions are ones which I think we do need to be continuing to involve public members of the public and representative groups when we're discussing those right. again at national level where we're talking about screening programs and that kind of thing what is the the common benchmark view or you know what is what is what is people's view about how much they want to know and when right because sequencing is a phenomenally powerful technology but it's only going to be useful if the information that it generates is given to the right people that need it at the right time and and also giving mechanisms to recognize that people's choices change over time right yes. and and different people may and i think the the alzheimer's disease risk is one of the classic examples right where where people can argue right past each other of why would you not <laughs> want to know even if you can't do anything about it or why would you want to know if you can't do anything about yes. it yeah. Absolutely. And I think those of us in the rare disease community might have a slightly different view from your right. average man in the street as well, because we have found that our children have these rare difficulties. And in our case, particularly the first three months of my son's life, life was good. You know, right. as far as I was concerned, we'd got the perfect family, two kids, right. two adults, all good. And and that happiness that I felt then, I wouldn't want anyone to have taken it away from me if he'd been screened at two days old for something which I wasn't going to be able to do anything about at the time. 
okay, if there's a treatment in future, maybe it's a different story. But to be told about something that you cannot change before it becomes apparent in the person you see before you is not necessarily a good idea, right. in my view. Yeah, that's um, never quite thought of it that way. But it, but it makes sense when you say it. It definitely makes sense. To, to wrap up here, I was wondering if one, one thing that I wanted to ask you, and, and I asked this to Matt might, and, and because I got such an interesting answer from him, I thought, you know, I thought it would be a question that when I speak to people like you all who've, um, who've done some of these amazing things, it would be good to ask. So if, if you were to transport yourself back to the past to speak mm-hmm. to yourself or, or speaking to a parent of a child with a rare disorder today that's looking to get more involved mm-hmm. um, to try to change the, the way things are done in the same way that you have, do you, what, would you, what would you suggest um, for them to focus or to prioritize um, you know, if, if they're starting out today? Okay, yep. Uh, number one is find your tribe. You know, getting to be in touch with other families who are in the same boat is by far the most important thing that we've ever done because if you're on your own, you're not going to manage to do anything. And even just finding somebody whose child is a bit like yours when everybody else you see in the world isn't anything like yours is so, so good. (laughs) You know, just, you know, unbelievably so. You know, the power of being able to be in a room and see somebody who looks just like your kid or who does, they've got a mannerism the same as your kid and you can go, oh, I'm not alone. This right. is this is connection here. That is really powerful. Yeah. So even from a mental health support perspective, beyond right. anything else, that's the first important thing, I think. And now that we have social media, it's much easier to do that than it used to be. Excellent. Secondly, I think being able to start defining what it is that you want to change. Right. That's something that Cure Grin have been quite good at so far. They've done quite a lot of thinking about where the priorities are, what it is that we would like to be different. We need to recognize that not everybody wants to necessarily cure their child. You know, in many cases, we appreciate that that's not going to be realistic anyway, but there are still things we can do to make life, life less difficult for them. So by trying to identify which of them are the priorities, then we are making some progress. Right. And then I suppose being able to then find some funding to throw at that right. is the third stage. Um, again, Kurgrin has been very fortunate very quickly and has some great people on the board who know really how to do this yeah. kind of thing. And, um, I suppose, you know, in some ways it feels like a very beautiful coincidence that the people who've come together with children with grin disorders have a range of skills there, which are professional skills in networking and in organizational skills and in publicity and marketing and fundraising. You come from a town planning background, right? So, I mean, I I think that uh, that ability to look at something that's incredibly complex and distill something reasonable out of it, right? Is that is that the kind of core skill from town planning or is it something else that... Well, the, yeah, the, there's not too much of an overlap really between town planning and healthcare. Yeah. Um, I think uh, more recently I was in, in the civil service in Britain and, and the, the training I got there in terms of trying to develop new initiatives where the right. landscape was as yet not fully formed is something which has been much more useful actually you know trying to define what your problem is initially and then conceptualize a solution to that has been you know something that stood me in very good stead later yeah i I mean i think that's just great advice generally i mean it's great advice for for a parent (laughs) that might be in your situation but i think find find a group of people that are passionate about the same things that you are that you share something with um and clearly define a 
problem that you want to solve or a vision for the future in some way and then and then find a way to make it happen whether it's funding or otherwise that's great i think um (laughs) yeah whether whether you're a parent of a child with a rare disease or a (laughs) young person figuring out what you want to do with your life or an old person figuring out what you want to do with your life i think that's the um, that's good advice. <laughs> and as someone who, in, well, we're we're um, in a 21st century office space today, which is full of millennials looking yeah. very groovy. <laughs> and I feel very old as someone who oh, was not born in 1980. Uh, but um, uh, it's quite interesting to to feel that, you know, the journey that I've been on as a rare disease patient has or parent, um, I feel like I'm never stopping learning. Right. And that's a great thing. You know, you don't want to get to a point where you feel you know all there is to know. But certainly the last five years, I've just been an explosion of, of what, you know, my my horizons have broadened so far. And it's really exciting to see where we might go next. Yeah, well, that's exciting. I think hopefully we can have you on in another, uh, maybe in a, in a year once you're halfway through the um, the network that you're part of now and you've been able to build the foundation of the patient Lead Research Network. We can uh, we can check in and see where you all are. <laughs> thank you. Great, thank you. 